Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Professor Jason Fitger of Payne University has returned in the third book of Julie Schumacher's Campus Satire Trilogy, The English Experience. And this time, he's headed to England on an Experience Abroad program overseen with the same quality standards as everything at Payne. Accompanied by a homesick cat lover, a confused if affable student who thinks he's headed to the Caribbean, a lovesick boy and his on-again, off-again girlfriend, a young man carrying an enormous weight of guilt and trauma, and DP, who takes off for the rest of Europe before the journey to England has even begun. Meanwhile, Fitger's only real confidant back home, his ex-wife Janet, has plans to make a career change, perhaps leaving pain with their dog in tow. This motley crew will tour around England from Oxford to Bath, with Fitger and an underqualified, underenthused tour guide who is perhaps Romanian, told in vying short essay assignments, each of which reveals the students as more than they appear to be, we are treated to the worst of American behavior abroad, paired with the worst of American universities' administration of those programs overseas. A cutting satirical knife used with dexterity, Julie Schumacher's The English Experience spares no one in this latest of her academic farce trilogy. Fitker, however, isn't merely the personification of academic malaise. He is also powerfully human, facing career envy, jealousy and loss, and a good dose of existential angst. The English experience is a special delight for anyone who ever went abroad in college and wondered what exactly they were meant to learn there. Hilarious, painful, and uncomfortably familiar, the English experience is a delight. 
Julie's first novel, The Body is Water, was published by Soho Press in 1995 and was an ALA Notable Book of the Year and a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. Schumacher's other books include the national bestseller Dear Committee Members, winner of the Thurber Prize for American Humor, The Shakespeare Requirement, Doodling for Academics, a satirical coloring book, and five novels for younger readers. Julie lives in St. Paul and is a Regents Professor at the University of Minnesota, where she teaches in the Creative Writing Program and the Department of English. Welcome to Burned by Books, Julie. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I and so many of my colleagues have loved this trilogy, and I'm so pleased that I got to spend a little bit more time with Professor Fitger uh, of Payne University. And you now have this trilogy of, of really beloved academic farces. How did this project come about? And how has your life as an academic provided background material for these books? <laughs> uh, well, it never was, I was never thinking of it as a trilogy. That was never the plan. The first of the three, Dear Committee Members, began as an experiment in form. I was teaching an undergraduate class and talking about form and shape and urging the students to experiment so as to begin a work of fiction in a particular shape, emails or recipes or to-do lists, et cetera. And they challenged me to find a, find a form of my own. I told them <laughs> the form I know best is the letter of reference because I write so many <laughs> of them. And um, I mentioned that to a couple of colleagues who said, you know, I wonder if that I wonder if you could do that. And so it it started as a fun experiment which mm. for me is always the best way to start if I start instead by telling myself I need to write a good book or a serious book or I'm engaged in a serious project it doesn't work out so well. So I like to begin where I'm just messing around entertaining myself. So that was that was dear committee members written entirely in the form of letters of reference and then um I could not get Jason Ficker out of my brain. I invited him in, I created him, and then he refused <laughs> to leave. He was he your just, Frankenstein's uh, monster. Yeah, he came to life for me. And I love the fact that you described him as powerfully human because in many ways he's a jerk. He He's obstinate. He puts his foot in his mouth on a regular basis. But he... You know, he has these virtues that leak through the cracks in his flaws. Mm -hmm. And um, I suppose I am just, I have endless affection of, for him because of that. When I finished the this latest of the trilogy, I was teaching Randall Gerald's Pictures from an Institution, uh -huh. a mid-20th century campus novel that has a level of bite that is quite rare. It turned out to be a rather unteachably retrograde book in its treatment of women and people of color, but its satire feels very current. Mm -hmm. What are the campus satires that have inspired you or that you have returned to and that might be examples that you drew upon in, in writing these three? Well, I had always loved the um, the David Lodge and the Richard Russo academic satires. Mm. And David There's... Lodge, of course, goes abroad in his. <laughs> yes. And one of my advisors at uh, Cornell University was Alison Lurie, who wrote The War Between the Tates 
a campus novel. I think she won the Pulitzer for that. And I've loved uh, Lan Samantha Chang, All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost, a terrific creative writing academic novel. But once I started on, on these books, I didn't want to read any academic, <laughs> academic satire whatsoever. I wanted to stay away from it in order not to you know, come under anybody else's influence. Yeah, of and course. The, the books that I ended up reading while I was working on the first were um, Nicholson Baker's A Box of Matches, a tiny little book written as a sort of diary. And um, also uh, 84 Charing Cross Road by Helene Hans, a, a book written in letters between England and the U.S. Oh, I don't know that one. It's an old um, nonfiction. It is a series of letters written by a bookseller, in um, a book buyer in the U.S. after World War II, writing to a store in England to get rare books. And mm. the correspondence lasts years and years. But it's a very slim little book. And I just looked at those over and over to think, how is this a book rather than just yeah. a bunch of little pieces? Oh, that's fascinating. I recall conversations I've had with members of my department, uh, especially when Dear Committee Members was first published, <laughs> There was this sense that you had tapped into the satirical nature of real-life academic work. They were bringing to the surface what we all felt to be true about our lives in academia, that so much of what we do as our job feels laced with farce. Do you feel like academia lends itself to this kind of treatment more so than, than perhaps <laughs> other careers? Well... You know, I've worked in academia so long. That's the, the profession and the job that I know best. I always think there must be equally satirizable material in other professions, but I just don't know those professions. And people who um, work in English departments in particular are the ones who are writing novels. So I think if you had, um, you know, barbers who were novelists, you'd find lots of satirical <laughs> material about barbershops. Uh, I'm did, sure there's much. <laughs> I did work, you know, a sort of a corporate publishing job for a while years ago, the sort of cubicle existence. And that to me also is eminently <laughs> satirizable. This, uh, yeah, there's a particularity about higher education in that Everybody goes to school, you know, pretty much in this country, whether it's just K, whether it's K through 12 or university. And so there's a sense in which everybody gets a whiff of the wackiness that can exist in an educational system. But those who work in it are kind of a rare breed, especially now, I think, yeah. uh, education coming under attack from certain quarters. So um, it's we're able in portraying the inside story of, of higher ed to uh, offer a portrait a lot of people don't necessarily get to see the inside of. That's true. The experience abroad is, for many students, a life-changing one. But there's often the sense amongst faculty that they are more junkets than academic experiences. Mm -hmm. And while students may learn an enormous amount, it's rarely from the classes that they take. This tends to be especially the case with trips to England, a culture and a language that bears enough in common with the U.S. to make that transition rather frictionless. What appealed to you about a study abroad novel, and why was England your choice? <laughs> there are logistical answers to that 
question. But first, I'll say I, um, as an undergraduate, I was a Spanish major, and I spent a semester in South America, a winter term in Mexico. I loved going abroad. That was, um, I feel like, the most important and eye-opening aspect of my undergrad education. It educated me in ways that were well beyond the classroom. For me as well. Yeah, yeah, partly because it was a a culture very different from my own. I was in in Bogota, Colombia, just to be immersed in a place where, you know, people went about their days in a different way was terrific to me. I had always wanted to make sure that every undergrad got a chance to go somewhere. You know, I just think it's important. So I have been teaching a, a travel writing class. I take undergraduates to Spain, Madrid and Toledo. And as soon as I got on the plane with the first group, I thought, what would Jason Fitker do with this? I just <laughs> not stop thinking about how he would react to being on duty 24-7 rather than, you know, an hour and a half in the classroom. And oh, that's the stop. thing, because you t- have to take on all these pastoral roles. Yes, it's a much different, uh, you, you sort of play den mother to, um, to them. And um, I... I Moved it to England because I did not want to be writing nonfiction. I wanted to, you know, in every way possible, separate myself from real experience, even if I was inspired by real experience. So um, my spouse had a gig at Oxford for a semester, and I went over and visited and decided this is where I'm going to situate the novel. Mm. Well, it's the uh, Javier um, Marias has that incredible. Uh, spoof of all souls. all souls, and yeah. as soon as you referenced all souls uh, in the in the novel, I thought, oh, she she must have read Marias. <laughs> I actually had not read it, but um, it was given to me while I was in Oxford. But um, I just at that point I was steering away from reading any other academic satire, so I, I think it's still on my shelf somewhere. It's great, but it's terribly depressing. <laughs> it has none of the. <laughs> the the light and liveliness of your satires it's very there's no there's no end humanity for the dons of oxford i'm afraid so you love to play with the novel form you've already talked about how dear committee members is epistolary in the form of recommendation letters the shakespeare requirement might be called a, a more traditionally plotted narrative but the english experience is a mixture of third person and essay assignments turned in by this eclectic crew of students studying abroad. What drew you to this newest form, and how do the forms that you play with create meaning in the text beyond the contents of the plot? Oh, I love that question. You know, I liked the idea pretty early on when I was drafting the book of bookending Dear Committee Members, which is you know, all of Professor Ficker's voice in every letter. In the second book, The Shakespeare Requirement, um, I gave, you know, voice and point of view perspective to a number of other faculty characters as well as to one undergraduate. And I thought, no, no, it's, it's the students have to have their day. Um, I want their voices to come out, you know, very strongly in this last book. And it, if their documents formed a part of the novel that was a way of, again, bookending Fitker's voice being so predominant in the first one. Um, and I had great fun writing those. I just thought, also, oh, this will be fun. 
to create all these different people and to think of how they write. I read undergrad writing all the time, as you probably do also. Yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's sometimes uh, you read something that's, you know, objectively badly written, but that breaks your heart at the same time. And I wanted to give voice to that. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um, well you get at i mean these are the truest version of student essays that i've ever encountered in fiction <laughs> bar none the comma abuse and the misspells and the horrifying syntax it feels quite homey to me and <laughs> and i'm wondering how you balanced needing them to be pretty bad but also needing your reader to want to continue, and also, as you say, to be evocative of of character traits and 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 a history and weight to these characters that we don't get from Fitger's estimation of them. Well, there originally was even more student writing in the book when I first finished it, and um, one of the editor's comments to me was, "Nobody wants to read this much student writing." <laughs> <laughs> that might have been right. <laughs> But, um, and I did also originally have more, a larger number of students that Fitger takes abroad, but I realized fairly quickly that I was going to get them confused with each other. I think I had 16 of them at first, and uh, I turned two of them into identical twins to reduce their numbers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I created DB, who is a student who essentially disappears from the group as soon as they arrive, um, because, you know, I, I thought he needs to take a certain core group, a certain number over with him, but I can't portray all these people and do it as well as I would like to. But it, yeah. was, it, was, it was great fun to try to create a sort of arc for each of them. That changed, I think, the shape of the book. Um, one of the last things I did was I gave the final chapter to a student. Originally, Fitger was going to have the last word. And then I thought, no, that, that doesn't make sense. The student should have the last word. And I feel like that she writes Fitker a letter with an assignment that arrives three years late, <laughs> which gave her the ability to inform him about what everybody was up to from his class from years before and to have a sort of reflection that would naturally come after three years of finishing your undergraduate education. A lot happens in those years post-BA. So that, I think changed the book in my own mind, giving that last chapter to a student who was still figuring out how she felt about her education and about their English experience. 
I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Oh, you are. You for know. sure. Yeah, no. And and I would say that for me, the the final essay of Joseph Ballow mm-hmm. is uh carries a real profound weight and mm-hmm. and and I found very emotionally moving. Mm-hmm. And it and it sneaks up on you. And I liked the the friction mm-hmm. between, you know, previous essays and this mm-hmm. one where he's doing this sort of back and forth between, you know, observing something. Uh, about uh, English uh, war history and then mm-hmm. thinking about his own family's inherited traumas from, from yeah. war. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you'd speak a little bit about the Ballow essay and and how it how you kind of uh, fit it into this. Yeah, I began, um, sometimes I would start out with drafting a student's perspective. I'm not a big planner or outliner, but I, I just started to... In, initially think of the students as there'll be one person who's homesick. There'll be one person who struggles terribly with writing, more so than the others. There'll be one person who's um, trying to get rid of a boyfriend who goes on the trip. Uh, you know, I, w- I was just thinking of how to differentiate them in my own mind. And I thought, well, sure, there'll be one who has a criminal record. And I wasn't even sure what that would be when I first inserted it early on into the novel. And, um, I, you know, it, there's a writing and rewriting process that allows me to get to know the characters. I have to do a lot of writing that I throw away in order to feel like I'm starting to understand these people I've created. So with Joe Ballow, I just, I saw him as damaged. I think the initial feeling you might get from the novel is, oh, she's going to make fun of all these students. And to some extent, I make fun of everybody in the book, the students, yeah, yeah. the teachers, the, everybody. But I also have great sympathy for them. And um, I think he becomes, his the damage that he suffered becomes more present over the course of the novel. And you get a sense of, he talks about being a claustrophobe toward the end of the novel for particular reasons I won't spoil, but yeah. he's... Um, feels like at times in his life, he feels that he is always going to be locked into a basement. Some part of his psyche will always be in the dark, in a closed place. But he will keep adding one experience on top of the other so that he doesn't feel that he his, the whole rest of his life will be, will be lived in the dark. There will be other moments for him as well. That's really beautifully said, and and yeah, I was struck by so much about his portrait of that that trauma and how he had car- he carries it still. Mm-hmm. And yeah. th- that's the trick of these essays: is they are one proving Fitka wrong in a lot of ways, and the mm-hmm. students are learning a tremendous amount. They're learning about love. They're learning about. They're, you know, in the case of the twins, they're they're behind the scenes doing all this study about twinning and figuring yeah. out what that means to them. Mm-hmm. And so they are learning and they are growing uh, despite, you know, their best efforts. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that's what I think. I, I, if it had just been making fun of them, I, I maybe I would have enjoyed it, but I wouldn't have remembered it. But I think what makes me remember it is that you know, we get these glimpses, bad writing and all, into mm-hmm. their, uh, into their growth. Um, you know, the, I th- the person who writes the least well in the novel is a student named Brent, and again, yeah, you, you can look Brent. at his prose and and throw <laughs> up your hands and think, oh, how is this ever going to improve? But 
I wanted to express, you know, great empathy with him as well, because even though writing to me was, was something, it was a strength for me academically, there were many other subjects that I had no ability in whatsoever. You know, I, I had to take a, a science class and a math class, and they drove me to despair because I could see that other people understood things that I did not. They could just do things I couldn't do. And and so I gave that feeling to Brent about writing. You know, I I know there is a way that I should be getting better at this and and I am not getting better. And and why why is that? I just don't have this ability in me. It will never be something I can do well. I understand that feeling. You know, many things I don't do well. Then the, you know, these personality traits that you give the students who come over with Fitger uh, are hilarious, even as they evolve. And I, I think my favorite is Wyatt, who introduces himself in writing by saying how psyched he is to head off to the Cayman Islands. That's right. And indeed, he's packed himself accordingly with shorts and T-shirts, even as he is, you know, prepared to get on the plane to wintry England. I wonder which character was your favorite and how much you were thinking about certain details about the lives of your students as you were as you were drawing these characters. You know, I wanted to I wanted to love all of them. You know, I don't feel like I could write a character I I didn't feel capable of being very affectionate toward. Yeah, I would say um Wyatt, Brent, um, Felicity, who is missing her cat. Oh yeah. You know, she's, she's the, feels to me the, the youngest and the most sheltered. She's very anxious about traveling and that. She's the one who's only been to Canada. Is that right? Uh, yes, I think so. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's a great poignancy about about that feeling. She wants to be brave and to do something she's not done before, but it's scary for her, which again is such an identifiable experience to me. Mm -hmm. The the nationally ambiguous tour guide for the Motley crew, Arva, <laughs> Yeah. has a spotty knowledge of English history, and she gets into battles with the students and Fitger. She has a moment when she chides the group, saying, it is their own history they refuse to care for. They only want to be clowns and to play. Mm -hmm. It's a harsh but somewhat accurate critique of the way that Americans sometimes hold history, even their own, rather loosely. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if you... Uh, we're thinking a little bit about the flaws that some of these programs abroad have in the sort of lack of seriousness with which American students or, or really any students take them, and whether part of that is that we don't care enough for our own history, let alone another nation's. I think it's it's tricky, the whole um, study abroad program, because you know the impetus, I think, for a lot of students is adventure. Here's something new. I have not done this before. I'm going to get on a plane and go to another country. I'm going to see things. I'm going to eat different food. It's going to be really fun. I don't think the first impulse for many people is I'm going to learn so much. I think they do learn a lot. But the first time I took a group to Spain, it was a winter term experience. And we left right after uh, Christmas and we ended up staying uh, on the Puerto del Sol 
on uh, in Madrid on New Year's Eve, which <laughs> turned out to be the sort of Times Square experience. And they had a ball. They had a ball, but but um, corralling them and getting them to come to class was pretty tricky because the whole country was on national holiday. Oh yeah. Um, so after that, I said, I would like to take people during spring break and avoid New Year's <laughs> Eve. I do not yeah. want to travel with people over New Year's Eve because it's, you know, it set a tone um, that was difficult to uh, get away from. Absolutely. Um, I, I can't I can't imagine the you have so many draws to students uh, attention and desire for adventure and trying to make them. I remember living in Japan for my junior year and mm -hmm. having an anthropology class that I was supposed to attend regularly. Mm -hmm. and meanwhile, there's, you know, festivals going on right outside the door and here <laughs> and which did i think i was going to learn yeah. more There's from the, the class the, or the festival which the festival one? yeah 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 and that the festival always wins sadly um before i let you go i'd love to know what you're reading right now and if you have any things that you might want to recommend to my listeners lots of things um well there's a um a first uh debut uh, author who's up for the Booker Prize this year, who was my student. His name is Jonathan Escalfrey. And a, he was a guest on the show. Oh, If I Survive You, it's a terrific book. Um, it's just, I think, just a devastating and beautiful collection of stories that also forms a novel. Um, there's a, um, a novel called Burnham Wood, Eleanor Catton. She won the Booker for her first book at a very young age. But I think this Burnham Wood, it's um it's just a terrific blockbuster. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. It's a, is it a mystery? No, it's it's a sort of environmental, political, um swashbuckling <laughs> novel that is turns begins gradually and ends up being such a dramatic page turner, last hundred pages. It's something to keep you up late at night. Wow. That sounds fantastic. Um, and I loved Jonathan's book and and I'm keeping my fingers crossed for him for the, know, the booker too. now that he's made the short list. That's yeah. really exciting. Well, Julie, it was such a pleasure having you on and I can't recommend enough the English experience, whether or not people have read the trilogy, you can read it as a standalone, but it will probably make you go back and read the other two. And it was great to live with Professor Fitker uh, again. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate this. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Julie Schumacher for coming on the show to talk about her third novel in her academic farce trilogy, The English Experience. You can find links to purchase The English Experience and all of Julie's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>